Hey, this is Kevin Weatherby at Save the Cowboy. I want you to tow that stirrup, throw a leg over the candle, take a deep seat, and pull your hat down tight. I ain't gonna tolerate no whining or griping, so let's all strike a long trot down that narrow trail and learn how to ride with God. Come on! What you waiting on? Let's go. We are in... Yeah, I like that right there. Uh, we are in... Probably, unless God says differently to me after today, we are in the last of our, I guess we've what, been doing this about three Sundays or something like that, talking about the title of our series is called Old School, and it's talking about learning the Old Testament in today's world. And so uh, today we are going to be talking, uh, starting with the book of Ezra, with the book of Ezra, you know, uh, Year, when, my, when my kids were growing up, you know, there, there's a rite of passage that, that every young kid probably should go through, and it's when they get old enough to ride a roller coaster, okay? And um, I remember my daughter, my daughter was five foot four when she was born, and, and she's taller than I am. Uh, she was about five foot four when she was born, and, and Griffin was about two foot two until he was around 16, so, and he's as tall as I am now, but I remember the first time they went on a roller coaster together, they're like, oh yeah, we want to do that one that flips upside down and throws you out and catches you and, you know, goes through the water and through the fire. Yeah, let's do that, Dad. I'm like, let's go. So we get on the roller coaster about halfway through. They are scared to death. I mean, just, get me off of this thing. And then when they got done, they go, that was awesome. That's probably what you're going to feel like today, okay? You're going to be going like, oh my gosh, because there's going to be twists and turns and loops and backtracks and fire and all of this stuff. And, and during this ride, you're going to be like, there's no way I understand anything that he's talking about. But then when we get done, you're going to be like, okay, that was cool. That, that was cool. That was cool. Okay. So I'm really excited about today. So wh what are we, uh, what are we talking about? For those of you that, that uh, haven't been here the past couple of Sundays, listen, what we're talking about is one of the major themes of the Old Testament. And, and if I was to ask normal people, and this is what I'm trying to get y'all and people watching online, I'm trying to make y'all above normal, okay? Above normal. Because I think if most people, if I ask them, can you explain to me the major timeline from King David on? Most people are like, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. But actually you can. Because let me tell you what that timeline is. From about 1000 BC is Israel's first king, and that's, uh, that's King Saul. And then the second king was King David. He lived around 1000 BC, reigned around that time. And then his son, Solomon. There was only three kings in the history of Israel that ruled over a, a unified Israel. Because after Solomon, things go bad and the kingdom is divided. And then around 750 BC, the Syrians come and destroy the northern kingdom, right? And when I say destroy the northern kingdom, what they do is they come, they kill a bunch of people, they take everybody in that land that lives there, they put them in other parts of the kingdom of that kingdom and bring in their people and put them in Israel. Okay. So about 750 BC, so about 250 years after King David, um, is when the Northern kingdom 
is eradicated. About 150 years later is kind of the setting that we talked about last week, okay? And that is now Judah, the southern kingdom, okay, is fixing to get overrun by the Babylonians because they're basically making the same mistake that the northern kingdom did. And there's a lot of prophets that are saying, hey man, y'all better straighten up or the same thing's going to happen to y'all. They're like, no, it ain't going to happen. And guess what? It happens, okay? So you've got King David, then you have the split of the kingdom, then in 750 BC, you have the northern kingdom wiped out, and then around 600 BC, you have the exile to Babylon, where Babylon comes, kicks Israel's hiney, takes everybody, and we talked about in that first group that went to Babylon was a guy named Daniel. Okay, and you've heard of him, Daniel in the lion's den. We had a whole study on him. And then in the second group was a fellow named Ezekiel. And, and that's probably familiar to you. If you don't know a lot about Ezekiel and you weren't here last week, go read, go watch that sermon and then read the book of Ezekiel. Uh, Terry Wilkerson, thank you, thank you. He was one of the few that actually I put out this, and I'm not saying nobody else did it, but I put out a challenge to people to say, hey man, follow along, be reading these books. And he did. He, he kind of knows what this sermon's about because I gave him inside information because of what he was doing. So anyway, um, so you have the exiles and, and God said y'all are going to be in Babylon for 70 years. Okay. And we talked about Ezekiel. Ezekiel lived through that whole deal. But now with the book of Ezra, we see Judah coming back. Okay. We see Judah, God rescuing them from the exile in Babylon. He's bringing his people back home because now why is he bringing Judah back home and he didn't bring the Northern kingdom back home? Well, let me tell you why. Because God made a covenant with David that did not depend on anybody's behavior. He made a covenant with David that says, one of your line will always be uh, ruling Israel, okay? So he had to bring them back. Um, today, we're gonna talk about that return just like I told you last week, the exile happened in three stages. You had Daniel go first, Ezekiel go second, and then when the temple was destroyed, most everybody else came back, okay? And now we're gonna do the same thing. We're gonna talk about three waves of people coming back from Babylon to rebuild Jerusalem. Today, we're gonna, well, let me ask you a question. Can you believe and that this is where it gets cool. There's going to be a lot of aha moments. Okay, there's going to be a lot of aha moments today. And can you believe that with one, within one original book is actually five Old Testament books? And I'm hoping that this is what happens. I hope that you are able to place these events going forward after today, be able to place these events in the major theme in the major Bible timeline. Okay, King David. 250 years later, northern kingdoms wiped out. 150 years later, exile. 70 years later, they return. And let me give you a little bit of a hint. After all of this is over, see, we're going to be getting into like 530 B.C., around 500 B.C. There's only 100 more years after today, and then God shuts the prophetic off. See, nothing happens for the last 400 years in the Old Testament until Jesus comes. All of a sudden, it's just like the, God just said, you know what? 
I'm just turning off the faucet for about 400 years. And then the next thing that happens is John the Baptist comes to prepare the way for the Messiah. So we're real close, even though if you open up your Bibles to the book of Ezra, boy, there sure seems like a lot left. There's really not. There's really not. But why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? Well, we're doing it because when we see how God moves and works in the Old Testament, it allows us to understand the New Testament in a maybe not better way, but more knowledge. You know, I mean, we can understand it better and not just for our lives today, but looking forward to eternity. Because in all of these books, you may think, oh, this is Old Testament. Man, they talk in Revelation stuff in most of the Old Testament, but we're because we don't understand where everything fits. We don't understand what they're talking about. So let's dive in. The book of Ezra. Who is Ezra? Ezra is a priest and a scribe. Okay. Ezra is a priest and a scribe. So he is the, of the lineage of Aaron. Do you remember who Aaron is? It was mo the first high priest that was with uh, Moses. As a matter of fact, uh, in the Ark of the Covenant is Aaron's rod, manna, and the Old Testament tablets. So, I mean, Ezra's of the line of Aaron, and that's an important line. But really, when you talk about, oh, oh let me give you another fun facts about Ezra. Ezra is also the author of First and Second Chronicles. So if you look in your Bibles, there's all of this stuff, and then it's like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. If you, and Ezra wrote Chronicles, okay? And if you read Chronicles, Chronicles was originally one book, okay? It was one book. Chronicles is the, is the last book of the Bible, okay? Really, and, and that's why I say don't read the Bible like a novel, because like First and Second Chronicles is way before, we have this tendency in our mind to think as we go further through that it's chronological. You're gonna see today that it's nowhere near chronological, okay? But if you were to go read First and Second Chronicles, it's the history of everything. It's a summarization of everything, okay? So he wrote First and Second Chronicles. He was also part of what was called the Great Synagogue, which was responsible for organizing all of these scrolls because it wasn't just the books of the Bible we have. They had Jasher, they had Enoch, they had all of these things. And, and Ezra was one of the people that helped solidify what books were in the Old Testament. So Ezra, even though you may not know much about him, he plays a huge, huge part in the Old Testament. So, but Ezra 1 doesn't start off with Ezra, okay? It doesn't start off with Ezra. It talks about a guy named Zerubbabel, okay? Listen, I don't brag a lot, but after four days of studying, I can spell Zerubbabel now pretty consistently, just so you know. It's amazing what, what studying will do. Pre, I mean, like four out of 10 times, I can spell it exactly right. So Zerubbabel is of the lineage of David, okay? He's of the lineage of David. Um, Zerubbabel and a guy named Joshua. Joshua is the high priest at the moment. So Zerubbabel and this guy named Joshua are going back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, okay? which is kind of a crazy deal. So 
Before we begin with that, let's talk about the three waves in the exile before we talk about the specifics. Okay, this is gonna be some dates. I don't expect you to remember these. I just need it in your short-term memory for about 20 minutes, okay? So chapter one tells us Zerubbabel and Joshua going back to rebuild the temple in 539 BC. Now you have to understand, 539 BC, this is important, is when the king of Babylon said, all right, y'all can go back. But if you go back and read Ezra, they took a bunch of stuff with them. So 539 BC is when the king of Babylon says, y'all can go back. Four years later, you have to understand, it's a 900-mile journey. Four years later, they lay the first stones for the rebuilt temple, okay? So what day would that be? 535 B.C., okay? Now, if you remember, the first exiles were exiled in 605 B.C. Now, I'm going to stretch your brains, what do you think would happen if you minus 605 minus 535, what do you get? 70. How do we, God said you're going to be in Babylon 70 years. That's, I'm giving it to you. That's 70 years. From the 605 is the first deportation to the time when the first foundation is laid is 70 years, which I find it Kind of funny that the exile started when the first people left, but the exile doesn't end. It doesn't end when they get back. It ends when they start on God's temple, which is important. Make God number one. Okay, now I'm going to read you. Ezra 1.1. 1, 1. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. He stirred the hearts of, the, he stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and to send it throughout his kingdom, okay? Listen, this is Cyrus, the new king, is letting the Israelites go back. Now, why would he let them go back and why would he pay to do it? Like he said, I'll pay for everything, y'all go back. Well, this is such God right here. Well, the reason is, is because basically, Somebody, maybe Zerubbabel, maybe Joshua, I don't know. Somebody went in and they showed Cyrus where Jeremiah said that the king of Babylon would rule the world from Persia and let the Jews rebuild their temple, right? Now, let me read something to you. This is uh, Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12. Uh, this whole country, now this is before the exile. If you remember, Jeremiah is preaching saying, y'all better repent or Babylon's gonna come and destroy us. They're like, yeah, it'll be all right. So Jeremiah, never he never went into exile. He stayed there, but most of his ministry was telling them that the exile was coming. So Jeremiah is predicting future events right here in Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12. This is some of what they showed Cyrus. The whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of Babylonians for their guilt, declares the Lord, and will make it desolate forever. Now, 
Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, all of the, the Babylonian kings, they have just got their butts handed to them by a guy that's a Mede and Persian named Cyrus. So Babylon, as we know it from the exile, they're not the world power anymore. They've been taken over by the Medes and the Persians. So they go in there and they say, hey, you see something cool, King Cyrus? Look at what our guy said. Our guy said that Babylon was going to be overrun by the Persians and that we as Israelites are going to be here for 70 years and the greatest king in the world is going to send us back. Would that happen to be you? <laughs> what do you think Cyrus said? Well, yeah, that's me. <laughs> I mean, that's how God works, right? They basically said, hey, this is you, Cyrus. Are you this greatest king the world has ever seen? Yes. Well, it says here you're going to send us back. I was just going to do that. <laughs> right? That's how the Israelites got back to, to Judah. Right? Okay. But, but maybe we can put one other thing in uh, a little thing's going to go click. Let me read something else to you. This is what the Lord says. This is also Jeremiah, okay? This is Jeremiah. Now, we know what the scene is, right? We know that the scene, Jeremiah's saying, y'all are, are messing up. You're going to get sent into exile. After 70 years, you're going to come back. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. Right? Y'all following me? Is everybody following me? Because this next part is extremely important. Let me read that again. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Now, can you understand that verse in context and why a lot of times us preachers, when people are throwing out Jeremiah 29, 11 for everything, you're like, eh. I mean, God does have a plan for us. I'm not saying that, but he wasn't talking to us. He was talking to his chosen people, Israel, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. I'm not going to let you rot away in some foreign country. I'm going to bring you back because I have plans to prosper you and grow you, right? Now we can start putting some of these really famous Bible verses into context and understand what they're talking about. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Man, God does what he says he is going to do. All right, we're done with that. So, where are we at right now? Zerubbabel, King Cyrus lets Zerubbabel and Joshua go back in 539. Actually, 535 BC is when they lay the uh, deals on. But when you get to chapter 4 of Ezra, it tells of the unrest about rebuilding from the people that have been living there. Now, you have to understand, they did the same thing. They took most of all the Jewish people out of Israel. 
they replaced some of their own. Now, there are still some people, probably like us, that would be living in the backwoods <laughs> that wasn't exiled because it was Jerusalem that was taken, okay? Not just the whole countryside. So there's still Jews there, but they, even though Jerusalem was taken, a lot of people came back in from Babylon and stuff. So what you're going to see is in these three waves back, it's the same pattern that I want you to remember, is they come back, they've got a goal, lofty goals, everything's going well for a while, and then the people that have been living there for the last 70 years throw a fit, they write to the king, whoever's ruling them at the time, and the work stops, and then the work starts again for a while, and everything goes good, and then the people that have been living there during the exile get mad, they write a letter to the king. I mean, this just happens over and over and over, okay? So keep that in mind. So chapter 4 tells about the unrest and the rebuilding of the deal, and uh, the people that are causing a fit are not, they are not Jewish, or they're of mixed Jewish race. Listen, the Babylonian exile combined with the northern exile, this is where the Samaritans came from. You know, those half Jews that lived in Samaria and Jesus had to walk through there, the good Samaritan, Jacob's well, you know, all, this is where the Samaritan people living in Israel came from, is from the two exiles and most of them were Jewish people that stayed there that married with the foreigners that came in, which is against the law of Moses. Okay, so at the end of chapter four, there is a new king and it's not Cyrus anymore. It's a guy named Xerxes. Okay, there's no Z, but there's like nine X's. Okay, Xerxes. He was in 500, by the way, if you, if you really want to know. <laughs> uh, king Xerxes, and he calls a halt to the building. They, they write him a letter. He's not the one that sent them back. Okay, and they say, hey, man, these people are doing this and this is going to cause trouble. And he goes, yeah, they're troublemakers. Make them stop. Okay, so now is the first. Uh, oh, wait, hang on a second. There is a 16 year period between chapters four and five. Okay, for 16 years, the temple rebuilding stops. But when you read Ezra, it just goes, and then there was a new king and the work started again. And you have to go through extra biblical sources to find out when these kings reigned. But if you do, like I did, then you realize that there is a 16 year work stoppage that the Bible doesn't necessarily, they tell you by telling you who the kings are. They don't tell you in the number of years, but there's a 16 year work stoppage. Okay. And here is the first, ah, okay, okay, because during this 16-year work stoppage is when the books of Haggai and Zechariah are written, specifically during this 16 years between chapters 4 and 5 of Ezra. So who is Haggai and who is Zechariah? Real quick, I mean, like, this is a four-point summary of the book of Haggai. He preached that obedience will lead to blessing, but unfaithfulness will lead to ruin, okay? His book drove home the point that our choices matter in this world for better or for worse. The obedience of God's people is part of how God works in the world. And that was my favorite part of the book of Haggai is that your obedience is through is how God works in this world. 
When you do what God says, God uses you in the world. When you don't do what God says, he don't use you. So God's obedience, our obedience to God is one of the main ways that God works in this world. So all of this, the book of Haggai, all of this should spur us towards humility and action. Humility enough to do it God's way and action to do what he says to do. So that's the book of Haggai written during this 16 year work stoppage. Then you have the book of Zechariah. While Haggai talked about personal responsibility, Zechariah was a man of visions. I mean, there's like eight visions and a bonus vision and it's full of symbolism and prophecy and all of that. But chapters one through eight might be summarized as this. The people ask if coming back to Jerusalem now meant the Messiah was going to come, okay? This is a big deal, right? Is, there's no Jews are living in Israel, kind of, you know what I mean? So when they come back, everybody starts asking, oh, the work stopped, we're at a standstill. Is this when the Messiah is coming, right? First part of Zechariah. But this is kind of what Zechariah asks. While the people are saying, is this when the Messiah is coming? Is this, and they, they don't really say Messiah. They say, is this when the kingdom of God, which the Messiah ushers in the kingdom of God, right? Is this when the kingdom of God is coming right now? But Zechariah, much like Jesus did in his earthly ministry, he turns it around and he says this, will you become the people who are ready to participate in the kingdom of God? And I think that's a very important question. Instead of saying, when is Jesus going to come back? I ask you the same thing that Zechariah asked the Jews. Are you the type of people who are ready to participate in Jesus coming back? That's the question. Not just, we're going to do whatever we want while Jesus comes down and fixes everything. Jesus says, no, man, y'all work. Be ready for my coming so that everything is ready when I get there as much as it can be, right? So that's chapters one through eight. The rest of the book is looking forward to the Messiah coming and Zechariah predicts that he will be a shepherd and predicts that he will be rejected. In the end, God's justice is finally poured out on the unbelieving and unrepentant nations. This is, you know, the tribulation and all of that. God pours out his spirit on his people so that true repentance can happen. Once again, that is for Israel so that they will accept the Messiah during the tribulation. For when Jesus comes back, they'll be ready. They're listed in uh, Revelation is 144,000 Jews that come to know Christ and preach his word and they are all martyred, right? So Zechariah saw all of this. Um, God pours out his spirit on his people so that true repentance can happen and all nations will be blessed by the new Jerusalem. Go read Zechariah. It's a fascinating story. If you have any questions, holler at me. So now we're back to Ezra five and six. Okay. We're back to Ezra. There is another king in chapter five and six. This one's name is not Xerxes. This one's name is Darius. Okay, after reading a letter, he does some research and allows the building to continue. Because what he does is he, Xerxes just took the letter for what it was worth and said, yeah, tell him to stop. 
Darius, the letter he was sent asking if they could continue, said, this is what the other kings told us we could do. He orders a research. He pulls out the clay tablet that says, yes, they can do that. So he says, y'all continue. So after reading the letter, building continues. Now, in chapter 7 is when Ezra leaves. Now, you have to remember, in the book of Ezra, Joshua and Zerubbabel went back to, to do what? Build the temple. Yes, yes, yes. Great. One person got it. We're going for two this time. Uh, Ezra, however, is going back to teach the Torah. Okay? Temple is built now. Ezra goes back to teach the Torah. Okay? But here is the second aha moment. Because between Darius approving the building to resume in chapter 6 and Ezra coming on the scene in chapter 7, so by chapter 7, the temple is built. Chapter 6 is when Darius said they could continue. Between chapters uh, 6 and 7 is a 58-year span. 58 years between Ezra 6 and 7. And here's your aha moment. Remember I said during that 16 years is when Haggai and Zechariah were written? Get this. In that 58 years between Darius saying you could start rebuilding the temple again and Ezra getting there, you want to know what happened? That's when the book of Esther takes place. Is in that 58 years of the Babylonian exile. Now, maybe some of you is like, well, I don't know who Esther is. Well, let's talk about the book of Esther now. And, and granted, do you see how we're still in the book of Ezra? And all of this stuff is happening. And, and you look in your Bible and goes, Ezra, that, that, that doesn't sound cool. But it's actually a phenomenal book, right? Bunch of stuff you didn't know. Okay, it is during this time span that the book of Esther takes place. Who is Esther? What is the book of Esther about? Real quick, we're out of time. It takes place 100 years after the exile in the Jewish community in the new Persian capital, no longer in Babylon. The new Persian capital is in a place called Susa. Okay, it's in Susa. Did you know that God is not mentioned one single time in the book of Esther? It's the only book of the Bible that does not mention God. Pretty crazy, huh? So here's a quick rundown of Esther. You're not going to remember this. This is like a Hollywood movie trailer, okay? So here it is. King Artaxerxes, right? If I have any more kids, I'm going to name them Artakevin. Artakevin. Artaxerxes is, is the king. We talked about him a while ago, right? So there's parallels. King Artaxerxes. Uh, he, he beats these, I don't remember who it is. He has this big military campaign that he wins. He comes back. You have to understand Artaxerxes, he likes whiskey. Okay. Now I don't know if it's whiskey or what, but, but he likes the bottle. Okay. This guy stays drunk nine out of 10, nine out of eight days. Okay. So he throws this big party and he asks his wife Vashti to come 
Now granted, you know, the queen is, is actually the king's husband, of course. The king has a harem of like 3,000 people, so he don't see his wife very often, and she don't really like him. She tells, he tells her, come to my party. She says no, so he fires her as queen. And in his drunken idea, you, you ever had one of them good drunk ideas? Hey, let's have, a, let's have a beauty pageant. Whoever wins, I'll marry her. That's exactly what happens. But this girl named Esther, who's a Jew, hides her Jewish nationality and enters the beauty pageant and wins and becomes the queen. During this time, her uncle is a guy named Mordecai, okay? M-O-R-D-E-C-A-I. Ask me how I know that, because I wrote it 500 times. Mordecai, her uncle Mordecai is by the city gate and overhears a plot to assassinate the king. Well, his niece is the queen, so Mordecai goes and tells Queen Esther, hey, these two fellows over here are going to try to kill the king. This is the way you're going to do it. Mordecai saves King Artaxerxes and is the national hero, right? During this same time, a guy named Haman gets the top job. So, like, you know, it would be like if we had a king, this is the next most powerful person in the, in the whole kingdom, is a guy named Haman, okay? And this guy... One of his first acts is to say, well, because of who I am and my greatness, when I walk down the street, everybody must bow. Well, he's walking down the street one day and Mordecai's walking down the street and everybody bows and Mordecai says, uh-uh, I ain't doing that. I only bow to God. So Haman gets all kinds of bent out of shape about it and uh, concocts a plan not just to kill Mordecai because they know Mordecai is a Jew, but to kill all of the Jews. Now you have to understand, the king doesn't know that his wife is a Jew and he doesn't know that Mordecai, the guy that saved his life is a Jew, right? So Haman says, hey, we're gonna kill all of the Jewish people and they roll a die to say, when are we going to eradicate this nation? And whatever day that is, that's when they're going to go out and they're basically genocide, just like the uh, Hitler tribe, the Nazis tribe. They're going to try to kill all the Jewish people. Okay? So, uh, Haman concocts a plan to kill all the Jews. So, the uncle hears word about this, goes back to his niece Esther and says, this is what Haman is trying to do. You've got to do something about it. But what we don't understand is that you don't just go to the king, okay? You don't just walk in and say, hey, can I talk to you for a second? Because if you try to do that without an invitation, the penalty is death. So Mordecai is telling Esther, hey, you got to go talk to the king. She said, if he doesn't call me and I go in there, I could be killed. And he said, well, maybe you were made for such a time as this. And you know what Esther says? I'll do it. If I perish, I perish trying to save my people. So she concocts their own plan, right, to, uh, she concocts her own plan to save all the Jews. And uh, so the way she tries to do this, instead of going to the king, she invites Haman and the king to a barbecue that she puts on. She makes some great pulled pork, toasts the onion buns with some sesame seed, makes some good old tater salad with beans, you know what I mean? She's throwing a barbecue, right? She got the whiskey for the, 
for the king. She got the beer for Haman, and they both get schnockered. Okay, they both get schnockered, and um, oh, I went the wrong way. They both get schnockered, and uh, or when he goes home that night, he tells some people, he's like, y'all put a sharpened stick in the ground right here because when morning comes, when morning comes, I'm going to kill Mordecai right here. Right here. And he stumbles off. And they do it. They put a big old stake down in there, right? So, Haman's getting a stick put in the ground to, to, to crucify Mordecai and, you know, stab him on the stick, let him die. Well, the king goes home and he's got the drunk insomnia. He can't, he can't sleep, right? So he orders something to be read. He's like, y'all read me something boring so I can go to sleep. Well, they pull out a scroll, and it's the story of how Mordecai saved the king. Well, the king's like, hey, I forgot about that. That dude's awesome, right? That dude is awesome. So the next uh, I think it was that night, the king calls Haman before Mordecai is sentenced to death. I don't know if it's that night or the next morning. But anyway, the king calls Mordecai, or not Mordecai, Haman, his top in command, calls and says, listen, if I wanted to bless the greatest man in this kingdom that is not me, how would you do it? Well, of course, Haman thinks it's him, right? Haman's like, well, you know what I'd do? I'd lead him through the streets, praising his name. I would make feasts of celebration in his honor. And I would do this, and I would do this. And I mean, he is like, woo! King says, dude, that is perfect. Give all that to Mordecai. <laughs> and you lead him around the streets. Haman is ticked now. I mean, you talk about a burr underneath your saddle blanket. Haman, the guy that he hates, that will not bow to him, he's got to lead him through the streets on a camel. Right? I don't know if it's a camel. Might have been a, might have been a paint horse. No, he didn't get bucked off. It's not a paint horse. It's a camel. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, Mordecai gets honored above everybody else, right? So, uh, Haman gets wasted. Uh, we already talked about that, sorry. So, then what happens is the queen does a second barbecue. This time, brisket. This time, Texas brisket right here, baby, with some shiner. So, queen has a second barbecue. And this time, she tells the king, King, listen, I don't know how to say this, but you plan to kill all the Jews. He's like, yeah. And she goes, I didn't know that it was important at the time, but I'm Jewish, and so is Mordecai. And Haman talked a plan, and he wants me and Mordecai dead. Well, the king flies off into a Shinerbach rage, right? The stake is still out there, so guess who gets put on the stake? Not barbecue steak. A wooden steak. Haman, king orders him killed on the very stake that he wanted to kill Mordecai. So, Finally, the Jews are saved. Mordecai gets Haman's job, and basically they live happily ever after. But, I mean, kind of what happens is the king can't really take that away for some reason. You can't, you can't reverse an edict. So on that day, the Jews can be killed, but 
king says, and on that day, the Jews may defend themselves. And then later on, the king says, hey, Jews, if you know anybody that participated in that, you can go kill them too. So it, it all ends up. But what is, what is funny is on that day that they were supposed to be massacred, there is a feast named, and they, I don't know if they still practice it or not, but it's called the Feast of Purim. P-U-R-I-M. Now, pur, P-U-R, means dice. It's the feast of the dice that was meant to be the eradication of the Jewish people that turned into the saving of the Jewish people. The feast of Purim, right? So, that's the book of Esther that happened in the 58 years between the building of the temple and Ezra getting there in chapter 7. <sighs> now we're back to Ezra. Back to Ezra. We can kind of summarize the rest of this book of Ezra like this. Same song, different verse. Just like Zerubbabel and Joshua, Ezra runs into problems with the locals. Unlike them, he isn't building anything. He's reading and teaching the Torah in the new temple. That's the rest of Ezra. Okay? Kind of. Because did you know that, that what wave is Ezra in? The second one, right? What about the third wave? The third wave is a guy named Nehemiah that has his own book of the Bible. Did you know that in the originally, Nehemiah was not a book of the Bible. It was Ezra chapter 20, right? It was all one book. But because it was so long, they ended up separating it. So now, let's finish on our fifth book in one sermon of the book of Nehemiah. Real quick. Take me about 45 seconds. Chapter 1 through 7 talks about the third wave back. He runs into the exact same problem as Zerubbabel and Ezra, and that problem is people. Some things never change. Some things never change. But in chapters 8 through 12, Ezra and Nehemiah join forces. I mean, they're, they're contemporaries. Ezra and Nehemiah join forces. They, how do they join forces? Well, they have Torah marathons. I mean, just reading the first four books of the Bible over and over and over and over. Sounds great, doesn't it? There's Torah marathons, Feast of Booths, or Feast of Tabernacles, which coincidentally, just so you know, is the only Jewish holiday feast that we will celebrate in the Millennial Kingdom, talking about how in the beginning when the Israelites in the wilderness, they lived in tents before they got to the promised land. And even when they got to the promised land, everybody lived in tents. Feast of booths or tabernacles. When you go to Passover, everybody stays in a tent to symbolize that. So they, uh, they have Torah marathons, the feast of booths, confessions of sin, covenant renewal, and a vow to follow the Torah in chapters 8 through 12. But guess what? There is still trouble. Zerubbabel, he fought against the temple being neglected. And, and what happened with Zerubbabel, just real quick, is that they went back to rebuild the temple. Well, they got to working on the temple and they saw a great-grandmother's ranch down the road. Well, that's 1,200 acres of prime real estate, right? Nobody had been living in there. The windows are broke, everything like that. So they thought, well, you know what we ought to do? Let's go get our house fixed first, and then we can run back and work on the temple. <laughs> It didn't always work like that. So Zerubbabel, that's what he fought against. Let's get God's house in order before we even get our own house in order. 
So Zerubbabel fought against the temple being neglected. Ezra fought people for working on the Sabbath, not following the law, right? And Nehemiah, he built the walls around Jerusalem. That was his main thing. And he, when he'd build the wall, you know what they'd do? They'd set up a shop and start selling stuff on the Sabbath right in the wall he just built. So he's getting all kinds of mad. And he's like, ah, this is not why we're doing this. Okay? It's not why we're doing it. So, basically, the book ends. The book ends. I mean, there's not really any... Well, I think there is a climax. It's a climax for me. It's not a climax in biblical standards. But the book ends with Nehemiah kind of beating a bunch of people up. Like, seriously. He beats a bunch of people up who were causing problems. And nothing ever made me want the Old Testament back more than that. I mean, I just wish we could just whoop people, right? Hey, you causing problems? Ty, go whoop him, right? Yeah. Let's go fix them. Right? I mean, it's, it's great. I mean, if it's in the Bible, right? No, I'm not telling anybody to go beat somebody up. That's not what I'm telling. But listen, listen. This is it. This is the closing. This, this is why you don't read the Bible like a novel. Okay? This is why you don't read the Bible like a novel. After 2 Samuel, well, yeah, after 2 Samuel is 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles. Then you have together Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, right? Those three do go together. But then you've got Job, which was written before the Tower of Babel. Then you've got Psalms. Then you've got Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. All of this is 250 years before, right? And then you get into Isaiah, who was before the northern kingdom gets destroyed. Then you get to Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Obadiah. Like, it's not in order. No wonder when you say, I don't understand anything, because you're reading it in order instead of studying a book of the Bible and knowing where its place is in the biblical timeline. But now, all of y'all can go read Daniel and know exactly what's going on. Then you can go read Ezekiel and know that he was in the second wave leaving for the Babylonian exile. And then you can you know, read all of that. And then we, we turn to... Uh, and Jeremiah warned, warned of all of that. And then we can turn to Ezra and see how Zerubbabel went back. And then during that is Haggai and Zechariah. And then a few years later is another 60-year period where Esther happened. And then the rest of Ezra and then Nehemiah. And my gosh, now we're starting to learn where everything goes. And if there's anything that we can take out of this besides beating people up... <laughs> is that God does what he says he will do. And that our obedience to that God will make a difference in this world. And if it will make a difference in this world, can you imagine the impact it will make on your life personally? God is a mighty God and he is a faithful, faithful king. Let's go to him in prayer. God, we love you. But most importantly, we thank you for loving us first. God, we're just as sorry as those people back then. God, we don't do what we're supposed to. We work on the Sabbath. And, and even though that Jesus even said Sabbath, uh, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for the man just to give us a rest. And, and God, that's important. That's important because we got a job to do six days a week and, and obedience and all of that. But on one day, we can just rest and, and rest in you. And God, we know 
that time is getting short, shorter than it was yesterday, when your son returns to set all things right again. And God, I pray that every person listening to the sound of my voice is ready for that return. Let us not just look for God to come and, and sort everything out. Let's be the kind of people that can welcome God in and that are ready for his return. God, lead us, guide us, and continue to love us. And we love you too. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.